0: Today we're speaking about God as a relationship God again. Last week what we focused on was the fact that God in Himself is more than one and yet He is one. And that's the nature of relationship. God can say, the Father can say to the Son, I love you. And the Son can choose to respond to the Father and say, Father, I love you. And the Holy Spirit takes of what belongs to the Father, He gives it to the Son. And then the Son turns around and He says, All things that I've received from the Father, I'm giving back to the Father. And there's this relationship of love and honor because they recognize one another. They value one another. And for us to be in the image of God means that we recognize other people as valuable. And so instead of taking from people, we give because we have that abundant supply from God himself. God is overabundant. He has More than enough. He was always satisfied in himself. And the reason why he made us was so that he could share that love, that abundance, that overflow of himself. And that is what we are supposed to experience in relationship with one another. But we can only do that if we are connected to the source of life. If God is not your source of life, then you don't have to give. But once you are connected to God, you have to give. It's easy to say, I will give. Whether or not you're good to me or not, because I'm not dependent on what you're going to give back. I can give out of the abundance of what's in me because of what God has done. And that richness, that's what it means to be the image of God. That you have been made for relationship. Yes, relationship with God, but also relationship with one another. If you don't have the God relationship right, all these other relationships are not going to work the way that they are supposed to. Today I want to speak about something else that is essential for relationships. Last week we spoke about the fact that you have to value another person before you can have a relationship with them. You need to recognize them as a person. But today I want to speak to you about the need for response. For a relationship to exist, it cannot just be me giving. It must also be the other person responding in some way. It doesn't have to be they give back to you exactly the same amount as what you gave to them. It's not about amounts, it's about whether or not you respond. God wants us to respond to Him. Whatever God did, He has always done it in order to elicit a free will response from us. Not something that we have to give, something that we want to give. You know, when you start dating a girl or when you look at the girl, and she doesn't respond, it's very difficult to ask her out, right? You're never going to go on a date if you try to catch her eye and she gives you the flat ignore, right? It's part of the male condition, right? We have to launch out. We have to risk. We have to make the first move. We have to say, I like you in some way, shape or form. But if there is no reaction and you keep pursuing that goal, they call you a stalker. If you offer something and there is no response, there can be no relationship. And what God is doing is God is offering himself. God is making himself available. But the mere fact that he makes himself available does not mean that everybody has a relationship with him. And if everybody doesn't have a relationship with him, it's not his fault. It's because people do not respond to what he puts on the table. And it is all by His power and it's all by His grace. But a gift is only a successful gift if it is received. I can offer you the gift and if you don't want to take it, that's the end. It never became a gift. And even if I give a gift and you receive it, but that's the end of the relationship, then nothing really happened. God wants us to respond to Him in a way that brings about relationship. And today I want to look at Two miracles, two miracles, both from the gospel of John. So you can turn to John 5. And as we look at these two miracles, you're going to see that these two miracles have many similarities. And the difference between what happened in these two men's lives, both of them got their miracle, by the way. But I think one of them made more out of his miracle. One of them got more out of Jesus than the other. And it all had to do with their differing responses. In John 5, I'm going to start in verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticoes. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, lame, blind, withered. Now, they're there to receive healing. If you read the next few verses, they were waiting for something miraculous to happen. The waters would be stirred and then the first person to step into the water would be healed. verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Now, 38 years. If you've been ill for 38 years, I don't know if he was there for all of his 38 years, but I'm betting he was. He even had his favorite spot. You know, he had his little mat, his bed. He had his mat there. He had his favorite little spot. Of course, My dad always asks this question. He says, now if you've been there a while and you know the first guy to get in gets healed, then you make sure you're as close to the water as possible, right? But is this what this guy does? Because verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, that's almost an insulting question. What do you think I'm doing here? Wouldn't you want to be well? If you were in my situation, wouldn't you want to be well? This almost seems harsh. It almost seems uncompassionate. What do you mean, Jesus, do I want to get well? Of course I want to get well. How can you ask me that question? But what he does is he gives Jesus a long story. He says, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So he can move some of his limbs. All right? Because when he sees that the water is stirring, he's on his way, right? Maybe he's dragging himself. Maybe he's crawling. But he's coming from a long way away. Instead of lying on the edge, you know, I don't care if I get sunburned, right? I'm not going to stay under the portico. I'll lie right on the edge. And the moment the water moves, clink, right? I'm in. Right? But sir, I have no one to put me into the water while I'm still coming Somebody else gets in before me. Poor me. Interesting. He's just focused on what the difficulty of his situation. I think this is why Jesus asks him that question. Do you want to get well? Really? Do you want to get well? That's not politically correct. That's almost uncompassionate. How could you say that, Jesus? Sometimes we're in a crisis situation. We have some kind of a problem. There's something that bothers us. There's something that's not right about our situation. And because he doesn't change quickly and we get some disappointment in fixing the problem, that problem becomes our identity. He's not just a sick guy, a guy with some kind of a sickness. He's been sick for 38 years. This is who he is. I'm the sick guy that never gets into the water in time. This has become his identity. You know, we talk about our problems that way. We call it our problems, right? This is my problem. This is my cross to bear. This is my issue. This is my family's issue. It becomes who we are. Instead of something that you're experiencing, it's becoming you. You're allowing your crisis to become you. If somebody offers you a solution, do you want to get better? Instead of talking about what do you mean, can I? What? 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 There's an answer. You mean? You mean you can help me, right? That would be the appropriate answer, right? But instead, we keep focused on that problem. I'm too focused on the problem. I recently read they've now programmed social media. You know, they're trawling your information, looking for things that show up and people that suffer depression. Write in a different way from people that are mentally stable. Now, of course, you could expect they would use words like sadness, loneliness, anger more often. But do you know what's a greater indicator of whether or not you're depressed? is how much you write about yourself. It's a greater indicator. People can use the word sad and lonely, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're depressed. But the more that people talk about themselves and me and my situation and this happened to me and why is everybody so cruel to me. And that's another thing that people with depression do is they make absolute statements. Everyone, everybody, always, never, I never get a turn. It always works out badly for me. Everyone is against me. No one is willing to help me. Sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like this, man? There is nobody to help me. Everybody gets in before me. Terrible, isn't it? That kind of thinking cuts you off from relationships. Now, bad things happen to people. And to be sad when bad things happen to you is normal. It's, a, it's in a reaction that God gave you. It's kind of like a warning signal. Don't go there again. That was a problem. It's the same reason why you have physical pain, right? It's supposed to be an indicator. Don't touch that hot thing again. It's a warning signal. Take your hand away and don't put your hand there again. It's normal to be sad or angry, to be emotionally hurt when bad things happen to you. But when they've stopped happening to you, And you still live in that place. You are doing it to yourself over and over. To keep going back to that thing that happened and that is where you find your identity is going to trap you in that thing. It happened and it was bad and it's right to feel hurt and angry and seek for a solution. But the solution is not going to come from going back there and rehashing it over and over and making that your identity. It's something that happened to you. That's not who you are. But for this man, his illness of 38 years has become who he is. In fact, the Greek there says not just he was ill for 38 years, it actually says he was in his illness for 38 years. I almost want to say he was into his illness (laughs) for 38 years. He really got into this ill thing. It's not just ill, he's into his illness. And in this situation, God through Jesus is reaching out to him. He did nothing to bring Jesus there. He did nothing special for Jesus to single him out. In fact, if you read the old passage, the father singled him out. Because later Jesus says, I do nothing except what I see my father do. So the father singled him out. This man did nothing to deserve it. Jesus comes to him. Jesus reaches out to him. Jesus offers him help. And all he can say is, poor me. Sir, there's nobody to help me. Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well. He picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. You can see where this is going to go, right? Not only does Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath, he tells him to do work. He's going to pick up his bed and carry a bed. Ooh, a little camping mat. He's going to pick it up and carry it all the way home. Wow, he really broke a sweat, I'm sure. Difficult work, eh? Hey? So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Wait, what? Not, who is the man that healed you? Who is the man that said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? They're not even interested in the fact that the guy was ill lame for 38 years. They just want to know who told you to pick up your bed. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Not, wow, you were ill for 38 years. You're healed. I'm so happy for you. You see, not only can you be too focused on your own situation, you can also be too focused on your list of rules and do's and don'ts. And sometimes God, God is doing something for this guy, isn't he? God is revealing something about himself to this sick man. But God is also, through him, revealing something about himself to other people. Sometimes God is reaching out towards us, doing something directly in our lives. And sometimes I see what God is doing in your life, and it blesses me. It speaks to me about what God is doing. It tells me something about the nature of God. But I can miss it. This man was so focused on himself and his own problems. And you'll see in a minute, he actually missed what Jesus was doing. And these guys are so focused on their rules, they're missing it too. Afterwards, verse 14 says, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. He doesn't want the Jews to be angry with him. So he'll tell them who made him well so that they'll be angry with Jesus. He just wants an excuse. He was in trouble, right? Because he picked up his pallet and walked. So now he wants to get out of trouble because, well, what does he say? Not, I'm healed and this is how I got healed. He says, well, the man that healed me told me to pick up my pallet. That's how thankful he is for what Jesus did for him. When he found out who Jesus was, he goes and tells the Jews, don't be angry with me angry with Jesus. He's the one that told me to pick up my pallet and walk. He heard what Jesus said. Something came to him, right? A revelation from God came to him. He received the revelation. He even responded. He reacted, didn't he? He reacted. He got up. He did pick up his pallet and walk. He even received a healing, miraculous act of God into his life. And when he found Jesus later, or when Jesus found him later... Instead of saying, thank you. Instead of saying, who are you? Instead of saying, well, you're telling me not to sin so that nothing worse happens to me. Explain to me how to live this kind of life. Instead of starting to respond to Jesus that way, all he does is he goes away and says, it was Jesus that made me well and told me to pick up my pallet and walk. No relationship. What more could Jesus have done for him? You see, this man goes away healed without a relationship with Jesus. God reached out supernaturally into his life, singled him out from a group, massive group of people, did something supernatural in his life, and still, because he's too focused on how it's going to affect me, and I don't want people to be angry with me, and I don't want the Jews to look funny at me He lost the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. He received something from God. He recognized that it was wonderful. But he's so focused on him, on his story, on his life, that he can't hear the story that God is trying to tell him. Chapter 9, starting from verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a blind man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither. It was not this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground, and made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated Saint. So he went away and washed, and came back seeing. Jesus wasn't even looking for him. I think the disciples were a little silly. I mean, blind people can hear well. Have you noticed? Blind people usually train their hearing. They're standing right next to the blind guy saying, so who sinned? This guy or his parents? Discussing him as if he's not there. He could hear every word. I promise you he heard every word that they were saying. But I tell you what, when Jesus started to work this miracle, I bet you that blind man was thankful that they pointed him out. And so he gets up and he goes and he washes and he comes back. And guess what? It was another Sabbath. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Jesus made clay on the Sabbath. That's work, people. Even though it was as much clay as you can make with your spit, but it was work. Jesus made clay on the Sabbath and Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. Terrible. Then the Pharisees were also asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. Not all the Pharisees missed it. Not all the Pharisees missed it. Now they're starting to ask questions. How can a man that is a sinner heal somebody that was born blind? So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. Hmm. At this stage, he's not even sure who it was, but he thinks this is a prophet. Something different here, isn't it? There's something different. This guy did not only receive God doing something special for him, he reflected. He thought about what it meant. He reflected. He did not just receive, he did not just give Jesus a reply. He reflected on what it meant. And when God reaches out towards you, it's good to hear. It's good to receive it and to say, wonderful, and reply in some way and say, thank you, Lord. But it's even better to reflect on it. Whatever God does is a reflection of who He is. So if you think about what He does, then you not only know what He does, you kind of know what He's like. You see, he was getting more out of this miracle than the man that was sick for 38 years. This man was receiving something more. So they call in his parents. They give his parents a hard time. Is this your son? Was he really born blind? And his parents, they're not happy for their son that's healed. They're just scared they won't be able to go to synagogue anymore. So they say, this is our son and he was born blind. But how he got healed, we don't know. He's mature. You ask him, I call him in again. Having a hard time with this, aren't they? Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? So he already calls himself a disciple. He just claims discipleship status. He says, well, he healed me. I know something's different in me. So I'm his disciple. You want to be his disciples too? Because I think by this time he knows they don't care about him. He knows by this time Jesus cares about him. It was important for Jesus to get him well doesn't seem it's very important to them. They just want to fight about their rules. They reviled him and said, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He not only received something from God, he thought about it. He is extracting information out of his own miracle. Can you see that? And because he's thinking about it, it sets him up. To get the most out of this miracle the best part hasn't even happened yet he doesn't know it I think if you were born blind you'd pretty much say this is as good as it gets I get healed I get sight when I've never had sight that's pretty much that's the top but because he thinks about it he's learning something about God he says but this man has to be from God he's, he's realizing something about the person of Jesus What Jesus is like because of what Jesus has done. And this sets him up for what comes next. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. This sounds familiar, right? Jesus found that man that was sick for 38 years. Jesus comes and finds this man and he says to him, Do you believe the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. It's not just seeing something, it's recognizing what you see. Can you think about what God has done? Not just what has God done, what does it mean that God has done? If you don't take that step, whatever God has done for you, freely, graciously, lovingly, will never lead to a relationship with Him. And this is how we grow in relationship. This is how we come into relationship with Jesus. And this is how we grow. God can give Jesus. He can send the Holy Spirit. He can work conviction in your heart of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But if you do not take the time to ask, what does it mean and how do I react to this and how can I use this to come into relationship with God, it will stay an action from God's side and there will be no relationship. We need to receive from God, yes. But we need to react. We need to reflect and then react in a way that brings us into a way to relate. Receive, reflect, and then react so that you can start to relate. You need all of them. And sometimes, even after we've become Christians, we kind of say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, love you, yes. No, you love me, wonderful. And then you're in a crisis situation. And God, in His grace, does something for you, and He drags you out of it. And you say, oh, thank you, and you move on. Instead of saying, wow, Lord, this shows me something more of you. I thought you're good, but now I know you're good. I know you're good, but I didn't know you're this good. And you start talking to God and you start thinking, we need to value whatever God does, the small stuff, the big stuff. We need to value it. If we don't, Christianity is just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've done the Christian thing. That's me too, yeah. And I go away without relationship with, I need to be able to think about what he's done and engage him in conversation. Say, Lord, I want this to be more than a nice day. I want this to be more than just a nice thing that you've done for me. I want to get the most out of what you've done for me. Not just the miracle, but who you are. You know, the first time that you drive way, way, way further than you should on a tank of petrol because God was gracious to you. Hey, come on, I see another hand there. Who else have done that? That little light came on way, 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 way back there. I mean, what would stop God from when you stop next to the road to send somebody along, send a good Samaritan along with the tank of petrol, right? That's also God. That's also good. I'll take that too. But I tell you, when you drive and you say, oh, Lord Jesus, I need help now. I need help. And you miraculously made it 100 kilometers beyond the yellow light. Do you get out of that miracle what you should Or is it just something nice that God did for you? Do you understand? Do do you extract the full value? God cares about me and God is ever present with me. The first time that you need supernatural financial provision and you know you've done everything wrong and you don't deserve a cent. And from a completely unexpected source, God supplies for you. Is that just so that you can make your budget? Or is that supposed to tell you something about the goodness of God? I love you. I love you and I want to supply for you beyond what you even deserve. Now let's talk about how we, how we manage our finances from now on. But you understand I love you. You understand do you, is that what you take? And do you ever think about it again? Or does it just get vague? Can you remember what God did for you and in the process get the maximum value out of it? You see, this is about us responding to what God does. This is why it's important. When God does it. It's because he wants a response from you. Yes he does it because he loves you. But he wants a response from you. He doesn't want you to pay him back. You can't. But he wants you to interact with him. Cora and I had this discussion. Two three nights ago. We were just talking about. How does the giftings of God work. Giftings in ministry. Or ministry opportunities. How does all this work. I mean, do you get more gifts if you pray more? Because then they're not gifts, right? Then you kind of pray for them. Then you pay by pray, right? How does that work? I told Korea. Now I think, I think praying is the reward. If I'm praying, I'm interacting with God. That's good enough, right? Now, if I'm faithful with what the Lord gives me, He can trust me with more. But I don't pray to get more gifts. I pray because praying is the privilege that I get God did something and he reached out to me and because he reached out to me I get to interact with him I get to respond to God instead of being quiet and far away God actually reached out to me and now I get to interact with him I get to react to what God says and does for how many of you have God done miraculous things let me see some hands He did it so that you can receive that benefit, but you do know that He did it so that you would interact with Him, that you would react to Him. God is seeking for us to respond to Him. You see, if we can learn to do this well in our relationship with God, it will start flowing out into our relationships with other people too. But if I cannot value my relationship with God, then any human relationship that I value becomes idolatry. I want to pray for us, and as I pray, I just want you... To start thinking about something, anything. It can be the big things, it can be the small things. But I want you to think about what God has done for you. And I want you to start to talk to God about it. Father, it's you that send the Holy Spirit after us. To come and speak into our lives. To reach out towards us, to give us revelation of yourself. I know it's you, Father, that are calling. Your son said that we can only come to you if you are the one drawing us. Lord, I know that you speak into us by the Holy Spirit, that you pursue us and you do miraculous things. You send your Son, you reveal your Son to us. You heal us, you restore us, you give us wisdom and insight. You provide for us, you inspire our minds, you give people into our lives in relationships, you grant us opportunities and gifts, you open yourself to us. You give us revelation from Scripture. You give us fellow believers to spend time with. You count us worthy and you place us into your service. And Lord, we say we receive it all as gifts of your love. All of this shows us that you love us, that you are a loving God, that your nature is to give, that your nature is to seek us, to draw us close to yourself, to seek that which was lost. Lord, we want to be restored to you so that we can spend time with you We want to respond to you and say, Lord, as much as you love us, we love you as much as we know how. We know we can't out love you, but we can respond to your love with love of our own. We love you, Jesus. We love you for what you've done for us. We love you for purchasing us by your blood. We love you for giving yourself to us. We love you as the exalted Lord that ever lives to intercede for us. We love you, Jesus, for sending your spirit. Holy Spirit, we love you for being the one that is always alongside us. Holy Spirit, we love you for being the one that takes of what belongs to Jesus and gives it to us. That brings us into safe harbor. Holy Spirit, we love you because you're the one that's working in our family's hearts, drawing them to yourself. Holy Spirit, we love you because you're the one that gives us the words to say to help people come to life. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the one that sees us as worthy and places us in positions where we can minister to others. You're so good to us, Lord. You're so good to us. And we declare that we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. We want to know you. We want to know the Son of Man. We want to know God made flesh in Jesus. We want to live this life that you have made available. We want to respond to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, please don't stop speaking to us. Don't don't stop showing yourself to us. Please don't stop revealing Jesus to us. As much as we might know about you, Lord, we know that it's only in part. And our prayer as a church, our prayer on behalf of the rest of the church that's not even here, As Lord, reveal yourself to us. We want to know you and we want to make you known. We love you. We want to respond to you with everything in us, Lord, our entire lives. Everything that we are and we have, it's yours. We want to respond. You gave everything freely, completely. You gave all of yourself and we want to respond and we want to say all of us, Lord. Even the stuff that we don't even know about, we give that to If we don't want to give it when you put your finger on it, just remind us of today. We just give you a blank check, Lord, everything. We want to respond with everything that's in us. We want to know.